Recording in progress. Welcome back to the Noel Kastler Podcast, episode 76, here with my 53 Hoffner. What a beautiful guitar. Sorry, I I was going to keep playing. (laughs) I had to make myself stop. I love this guitar. I'm playing it for a very specific reason today, because it's the week that Tragically Hip played their final concert, and their remarkable poet of a lead singer, Gord Downey did one of the most exceptional things I've ever seen in life. And that guitar there I got in Kingston, Ontario at the Kingston Guitar Shop, which is the hometown of the Tragically Hip, one of the best bands ever. I mean, a band literally on par with U2 and Radiohead and R.E.M. It never really caught on in the United States, but any Canadian listeners know is a part of the fabric of Canada. And what happened was their genius lead singer, who was just one of the great front men front ever and a great poet and real intellect who, who helped explain Canada to Canadians in a way, like a Bruce Springsteen does to America. You know, he made sense of historical facts and cultural things in a very honest, direct way, which is what good art does, right? It explains our situation to us and helps us understand where we've sort of gone wrong and appeals to our greater angels. And nobody was better than that for Canada than the great Gord Downey. But Gord Downey tragically was diagnosed with a brain tumor back in, I think, you know, 2015 and uh, 2016. So their last concert was basically the year he was undergoing treatment for a brain tumor. And he did something very brave so he could do a final show and, and, you know, a final tour and say goodbye to the fans. So he put himself at considerable, you know, discomfort. I won't get into the details. There's a great movie on it called Long Time Running about what he went through to do this final tour. But this final tour culminated in a concert that was held on August 20th, six years ago. So you can do the math. Six years ago, they had this final concert and a third of Canada came out to watch this. People were watching it from the territories up by the North Pole to the big cities. They were going to parks. They were going to events. Prime Minister Trudeau came out to watch it. They played the final concert themselves in Kingston, their hometown. You know, and they ended with with one of their, their great, greatest songs called Ahead by a Century. It's just a beautiful poem of a song and an anthem. And I'll probably start crying just describing this to you. But if you see this moment where everybody comes together and sings this song that means so much to them, and they know they're saying goodbye to a great hero, you know, who's given them so much joy. To me, that kind of stuff is the ultimate in humanity. You know, when we come together for a purpose that defines our spirits and, and, and you know, our aspirations and our hopes, and we understand we're all in this together, you know, in music and art and life, They're all commingled in these moments, you know, and it becomes something bigger than yourself. And Canadians got to experience that that day. You know, they did that. That's on them. That 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 kind of thing hasn't been replicated, you know, in the music business. That band did it. They landed the plane, as they would say. And it's a remarkable feat and and a once in a lifetime story. And you should watch it if you need some inspiration. And and those moments I talk about, you know, I'll talk about it in depth the other another time, but like at Biggie Small's funeral, there was a similar thing in Brooklyn when his casket came through his, you know, Bed-Stuy or whatever, Brownsville, I forget exactly where his part of Brooklyn was, but, you know, when all those people were on the street, 
and then somebody hit the you know hit play on the music you know on the boom box and everybody just erupted in joy you know at, at like the beauty of his music and there was a moment where everybody was like you know they took him from us but they didn't take the spirit and our man made it and he brought joy and made an impact on the world and we're all better off for it that's a celebration of life that's a celebration of the human spirit and that's why we go to concerts that's why we go to plays that's why we listen to music you know and and look at paintings and whatever it is you know read books though that's kind of solitary but uh you get my point you know when you see those displays of compassion and empathy and togetherness you know hold on to them carry them it's a movable feast as i've said at other times you can keep that in your heart and the spirit will be right there when you need it to call upon so that being said let's get into it i know i'm coming to you a little late if you're just listening on monday the headlines don't stop and and of all the 75 episodes i've done this the 76 probably has the most remarkable thing to talk about at the top of the show which is donald trump's fbi subpoena you know that was served on mar-a-lago last monday afternoon and i remember there was a local reporter who broke it and i happened to see his tweet you know about an hour before it was a national story and he was like hey man i'm seeing fbi agents going in and out of mar-a-lago i'm not a big enough reporter to track down this story but can somebody get on it and i was so tempted to retweet this guy but i don't do that you know until i know it's a fact and of course we all got confirmation from trump himself who couldn't resist tweeting out the violation that had occurred to him that they were you know raiding his private home which is not, it's not his residence. He's listed as an employee there. That's how he gets around the loophole of being able to live at Mar-a-Lago where he doesn't really live, right? He's just there in the winter and stuff. You know, he lives in Bedminster the rest of the time in Trump Tower in New York City. But he, when he set up Mar-a-Lago in 1993, the town didn't want it because Palm Beach is old money, waspy kind of blue blood. You don't flaunt it. You got a big house, but you're not a gaudy kind of, you know, nouveau reach idiot and trump embodied that right he'd already failed out in greenwich when he tried to live there he'd already like you know been kicked out of country clubs and denied memberships and in amagansett and stuff so you know palm beach is the next thing on the list because trump was a guy from queens right he was you know he was a basically you know a rich trashy guy from queens who grew up in a house that had like lawn jockeys on the lawn and stuff his father was trash son of an immigrant there's nothing about immigration that makes you trash but they were they were not like blue bloods old money ivy educated folks right trump bribed his way into Penn, but this wasn't like you know these weren't the rockefellers but trump wanted to be that and mar-a-lago which was the home of meriwether post pavilion or that, that's actually a concert hall <laughs> meriwether post a, a big heiress in the country who had a pavilion in columbia maryland that i grew up going to see concerts at that's where jackson brown recorded running on empty and such but i'm digressing but so mar-a-lago was a place he sent his set his sights on when he when it was up for sale in the early 90s he was like i can get this you know i can get into palm beach society and naturally they recoiled at that because they knew who trump was and he was a trashy casino you know owner tabloid chasing philandering scumbag right they didn't want the guy in town and he was also going to open it as a club which they were like dude we don't want people living there you're not opening a hotel in our neighborhood and they got a, a rule, his lawyers got a rule that nobody would stay there more than 21 days. You know, that was the rule that sort of allowed him to open and operate it. And then the question arose again when he said, this is now my primary residence when he got in a fight with New York City and he basically didn't want to pay taxes in New York anymore. And he thought DeSantis was going to give him cover from all of his, you know, the legal things that were breathing down his neck, which we're going to dissect over the next hour. But... So he said, you know, I'm just an employee of Mar-a-Lago. I don't technically live there, but employees are allowed to stay there and live there because it's a resort. So that was the loophole that he used to, to use it as his residence after he left the presidency. 
And now, of course, he's got Elise Stefanik and all these GOPers acting like they just raided his home and kicked down the door in the middle of the night, and it's a big affront. So, you know, it's not a private home. You can buy a membership and go stand at the omelet bar with that bloated scumbag as much as you want or do some lines with Don Jr. in the back bathroom and, you know, dance alongside Matt Getz at the New Year's Eve party. It's open to anybody dumb enough to spend the money to want to be around that filth. And there's a lot of people like that. So at least in Florida. But anyway, I digress again. So my point is like his excuse on this raid is already stupid. And it's like the fifth excuse he's come up with, you know, because they're obviously flailing. But let's just break it down. What happened, right? He got raided because he stole a bunch of classified documents before he left the White House because he was obviously going to sell those documents. That's who Trump, Ivanka, and Jared are. And to a lesser extent, extent, Don Jr. and Eric, they're imminently corruptible, but they're just so kind of, they're, they're out of the loop. You know, they're like the rapid dogs that run out in the yard and, you know, chase away the neighbors. But they're not like insiders in terms of what's really going on. That's why Don Jr. didn't even have his dad's phone number. On January 6th, he had to text Mark Meadows, who is probably the guy who dropped a dime on Trump per this raid. Because they knew exactly where this stuff was. It was in the basement. It was in his bedroom. It was in Melania's closet. And uh, that's where they raided. You know, or, or, you know, raiding is not the right term. But, uh, you know, that's where they went in and executed a legal search warrant, which, by the way, one of their other excuses, they're trying to say that it was signed off uh, by a judge who was Epstein's attorney, which is not true at all. He, He represented victims of Epstein and Epstein himself was a member and and frequent guest at Mar-a-Lago, who Trump would fly down there on his own 757 and have parties with Buffalo Bills cheerleaders. If you've ever seen that video of Trump and Epstein standing around all the girls with the big hair, and then Epstein doubles over in sort of shame and embarrassment when Trump whispers in his ear, that's at Mar-a-Lago. And those girls were Buffalo Bills cheerleaders that Trump had flown down there when he was trying to buy the bills. And what you need to take away from that video, obviously, besides the amount of cocaine (laughs) that's in Trump's gacked out brain at that moment, if you've ever done cocaine and know what it looks like, you know, you know where my man is at. But what you need to take from that is, sorry if it's too loud, I'm just looking at the monitors here. What you need to take from that is Trump was the guy who said something to Jeffrey Epstein that made him double over and recoil, right? Think about that. Think about the guy who said something so gross that he made the dude who traffics in 13-year-old girls recoil and be like, dude, that's too much. And in that clip, it talks about, you know, it sort of shows their relationship. Epstein was a mentor of, you know, was a mentee of Trump's. Trump was the guy setting up the human trafficking stuff with Trump modeled management, okay? Epstein was a money laundering, sort of dirty wingman for powerful pedophiles his whole life, including Bill Barr's dad, right? He was a guy who married that sort of vice with money laundering and Ace Greenberg, Wall Street money and Russian money and real deep dive stuff. And then you get Robert Mercer in there and it's just this hornet's nest of debauchery and espionage. But Trump was right there in the middle of it. Trump was BFFs with Epstein and you need to think about that because now they, they use it like jiu-jitsu, as I said last week, and try to throw whatever he's guilty of back on the other people, you know, including the raid itself. Trump raided his own doctor's office in February of 17, right? Within a week, two weeks of being sworn in, he sent Keith Schiller, Alan Garten, the Trump Organization top lawyer, and probably Matthew Calamari. The doctor only said it was another really big guy. That's probably Matthew Calamari who's a very big guy, and uh, they raided Dr. Bornstein's office, who was Trump's Dr. Feelgood. Trump made him his primary physician in the 80s, even though the guy was a gastroenterologist, and that was just a front for selling pills to rich people on the Upper East Side and Park Avenue, including a lot of my friends. Trump 
raided that guy's office and stole all his medical records, pushed them aside, took all the Trump medical records. That was one of his first first actions as president because he knew that guy had decades of Adderall prescriptions and benzodiazepine and all the shit that Trump takes. It was a loose end that needed to be tied up. Trump didn't have a warrant for that. No judge had signed off on that. You're entitled to copies, not the original documents. But Trump sent his goons in there and they stole the documents. And the guy, Dr. Bornstein, called it a raid. He said, I feel violated. They came and threw me up against a wall and stole the stuff and the pictures off the wall with Trump and everything. And that guy, of course, showed up dead in January of 21, right after the Capitol insurrection, right after Trump was going to be a free agent again, so to speak, and open up open to all sorts of lawsuits, right? So Trump is no stranger, right, to ordering raids from the Oval Office. He did this as a president of the United States. But now he's flipping it and trying to say that Biden politicized this, who had no knowledge of the raid, right? If Biden's done anything, he's been hands-off with the DOJ to his credit, right? And to the consternation of critics like me, because that's our job. But, you know, they did it. And Merrick Garland is kicking ass. And, you know, every week I've been trying to, you know, vent my frustration and say, read the room. The dude read the room this week, right? And, and Merrick Garland came out and gave a brilliant press conference when the issue of, well, make the affidavit, you know, or make the uh, subpoena public then. That was Trump's first excuse. There was nothing in there. It was a bunch of wedding invitations or something, right? So make it public. And Garland called his bluff and made it public. And what did we find out? That it was classified documents, that it was nuclear secrets. And Jared Kushner would have been the guy behind that stuff. Jared Kushner would have walked into the White House on day one and say, what's the most valuable thing we can take here? Because that's how they operate. What's in it for us? What can we stuff our pockets with? They did that back on Celebrity Apprentice. They would steal fucking power bars off the craft service table, okay? They ran a Ponzi scheme, pyramid scheme, with a company called ACN, which was fake video recorders. Not fake, but it was just no need for it. It was dumb technology. FaceTime already existed and stuff, but they were selling this thing where like this big dumb video phone you'd put on your desk and you'd be able to make like a Jetsons video call to somebody, you know, stuff you could already do on your phone. But they were, they were getting people involved. Get in on this company early and you'll, you know, make money. And that company paid Trump $8.1 million, him and his kids, and they promoted it on The Apprentice. And it made it more, look more legit. And it was sort of like, you know, pyramid marketing, where you'd call up your buddy and be like, hey, you want in on this great company? And a lot of people fell for it. And a lot of people fell, you know, lost money. So it was like a Trump University kind of scam. And that's what he was running while he was on an NBC show, okay? So I'm telling you that because that's who these guys are. They, they, they get elected to office and they say, how can we make the most money? And Jared Kushner was the point man on that stuff with Ivanka. You know, what I noticed in my time around them was tr Trump is a narcissist, right? You've heard me say this before. He wants to feed that hole inside of his soul. So everything's very immediate to him. He wants music to play when he walks into the room. He wants to get high and he wants to hit on women, right? He wants to be admired. He wants to be like he would walk around like he was president back then. He'd have these Secret Service dudes around him and he'd walk into the after party and like sort of they'd part the crowd for him. And we'd be like, dude, we just saw you a half an hour ago across the hall on the soundstage like this is not impressive you're not in president you know but he would always be addicted to the pomp and circumstance of i'm a powerful man because he's so weak inside you know he's so sort of like you know hampered by his own defects both morally and intellectually you know he couldn't read he was dyslexic and his dad was embarrassed about it so they hit it and hit his school records and sent him to military school and stuff because you know he wasn't going to cut it and he, they weren't going to ask for help because they were so arrogant about everything you know because they believed in this nazi like bloodline crap that they were somehow superior they couldn't admit that they're you know their son was a dumbass, right? <laughs> and and ha I'm not saying if you're dyslexic, you're a dumbass. There's no shame in that. You get help and you deal with stuff. But like they'd rather bluff their way through life. So here's Trump, you know, a 70-year-old who's now president who can't read, 
right? So that's a dangerous situation. But when you have Jared and Ivanka behind the scenes saying, no, this is good. We can make money off of this, Dad. We're already getting all our money from the Russians. Now Jared can set up a back channel with Putin and we can just cut deals and not even have to do it under the auspices of the White House and the, the government agencies, right? The spy agencies. And that's what Kushner tried to do. And then he feigned ignorance when he got busted on it, right? By the NSC and the CIA. They're like, what is this guy doing? He's trying to set up his own back channel. That's literally what Jared did when Trump became the president-elect. He was like, hey, let's just exchange cell numbers so we can talk deals without the private, you know, without the prying eyes of the government now that we're official. That's insane. And that's one of the reasons they didn't want to give Jared Kushner a security clearance. The other is 666 Fifth Avenue and all the enormous debt he had because it was one of the dumbest purchases anybody had ever made, right? He overpaid by like a billion dollars a month before the financial crash. That's who these guys are. They're always failing up. You know, Kushner is almost Trump in, in many ways. He's the same type of guy, right? His dad's a very wealthy real estate developer. He himself is not that bright. His prep school teacher said he was one of the dumber students he had, but his parents bribed his way into Harvard. He got to go to Harvard. They bought a new lounge at NYU for NYU. Jared got to go to NYU Law School, even though he never took the bar, right, when he graduated. Imagine that. NYU Law is one of the best law schools in the country. You're going to graduate and not bother to take the bar? He didn't need to. He was walking in. You know, he was walking on to home base, right? He'd already hit a home run. He was born on third base. He just needed the, you know, the sort of like credentials that it gives you. You know, the, the illusion of, of acceptability is something that Trump's and Kushner's traffic in. Hey, we're rich. We went to the right schools. We go to the right parties. We must be good people. We're wearing a suit. They're not good people. They're immoral cowards and greedy, philandering, you know, lying, deceitful, treasonous people that got elected to the United States because a lot of people wanted them in that position of power. From Rupert Murdoch to Leo Leonard at the Federalist Society to the Heritage Foundation and the crazy Christo-fascist nuts like Ginny Thomas and then the just plain immoral GOP senators like Mitch McConnell and their little lapdogs, you know, like Ted Cruz and in the Congress, you got Jim Jordan, you know, so there was all this like toxic, like mediocre firm, you know, establishment. They're ready to welcome somebody like Donald Trump, who was just going to like take away all pretense that this just wasn't a scam and a grift to fill our own pockets. And that's what Trump did. Right. So they walked in there on day one and said, how can we make some money? And I'm trying to keep it on point and show you how Jared would have coordinated this. The first trip that Trump took as president of the United States was to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You know, in any, in any kind of presidency, there's a big first foreign trip. It's always a big deal. It's often to an ally, you know, a non-controversial ally. The UK comes to mind or something, France. Trump goes to KSA. Saudi Arabia, you know, the company, the country that had 15 of the 19 hijackers and helped finance it. You know, Bin Laden was from a wealthy Saudi Arabian family. Okay. We've always had tense relationships with Saudi Arabia. My grandfather was an NSA agent and he was stationed in Riyadh for much of the 80s. Okay. Like half of the intelligence we gather involves the, the, the Saudi Arabians because it's obviously such a, a just, you know, such a, important ally because they control so much oil, you know, and, and that's oil is money. Oil is freedom. Oil is democracy in a way. It's not. <laughs> I'm being ironic, but for our national interest, we're always keeping close tabs on KSA. Trump and Jared were looking at like, hey, we already got all this Russian cash. Now we have, you know, MBS. They have their own young ruler who's equally immoral, you know, and ambitious and ruthless. It's a perfect match. So what did they do? Kushner said, hey, we're going to come visit you. This is how you own my father. Okay. You need to appeal to his narcissism. So as soon as Trump got off the plane, Air Force One, and they're driving him into, you know, 
where, where I forget the the capital, you know, wherever they had that the orb dance and stuff. There's Trump's picture on the side of a building, like 50 feet, you know, long, 50 feet wide, 500 feet long, giant portrait of President Trump. And he's like, oh, look at that. You know, looking out the window of the, of the you know, SUV. Look at that. There I am. These guys know how to do it right. And then they do the orb dance, right? Or the sword dance. And they all sat around the orb and they all kissed Trump's ass and made him feel like a king. And in that way, you own his ass. And that would have been advanced, right? One of my jobs in TV is I would advance things. You know, I'd work with Oprah or something. You'd do the walk beforehand. You'd make sure they knew how to receive her properly. That's what they did to Trump. And you always do an advance with a president, but usually it's Secret Service, you know, doing bomb sniffing dogs and stuff. This was an advance on Trump's narcissism given by his daughter and her, his son-in-law on how you would endear yourself to this man who is now president to have unlimited corruption. And that's what they did. That's what they got. What was the next policy action that Trump had? It was trying to transfer nuclear technology to KSA. And this is energy technology, right? This isn't bombs. This is about like small reactors that can, they're sort of portable and can provide a lot of power and stuff. Things like that were very strategically important to Saudi Arabia. They still are. And Trump tried to transfer that Technology and U.S. watchdog agencies were like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> like, we're not giving this stuff away to our potential adversaries and frenemies, right? That was all Kushner's doing. And then he set up the Abraham Accords, right? And he had Benjamin Netanyahu, another crook who happened to sleep in Kushner's bed when he would visit New Jersey, you know, sort of the Israelis version of Trump in many ways. Right. Then he worked in concert to go around to Jordan and the United Arab Emirates and set up all these deals. Right. So when the energy transfer to KSA was nixed, what happens next? Well, how do we still get it to them? You know, what information do you need and how do I help you find that? And remember, Kushner got in trouble for exchanging WhatsApp messages with MBS. Right. Not to mention Jamal Khashoggi, a Washington Post reporter and American citizen, was murdered because he was sniffing in to MBS's corruption, right? And how, how many times do you think Jared's name came up in that, right? And then they kill him in Turkey. Our administration literally looks the other way. Kushner has a book coming out on the 23rd next week. It's his memoir. He's got chapters on how he thinks MBS is a good guy and is doing all these good things for Saudi Arabia and helping women's rights and all this complete bullshit, right? And says that he took him on his word, that he had nothing to do with MBS. They murdered the guy and dismembered him in a, in a Saudi Arabian embassy in Turkey, you know, because the guy was trying to get a wedding permit, right? Blatant murder on a national stage of an American journalist. And they were just like, meh, why should I turn away from all that money? That's what Kushner says in his book. And what did Trump say two weeks ago when they had a KSA-sponsored live golf tournament at Bedminster? And he was asked, hey, you know, 9-11 families are offended by this. You know, New Jersey lost 700 residents more than on 9-11. They're pissed off that you're hosting Saudi Arabians, not to mention they had a trophy that looked exactly like the towers after they fell down. It was almost like they were punking us, and they were. And that tournament was probably what led to this raid in many ways, because I feel like there might have been some chatter. You know, as I said, my grandfather worked for the NSA. I have no idea what he ever did because he wasn't allowed to talk about it. Most people with classified top secret information don't share it with anybody, their spouses, their children, whatever. Trump was, you know, reckless with that from the beginning. But my guess is we heard some chatter. You know, our intelligence agencies heard that people might have been going into Mar-a-Lago and discussing seeing these documents. And remember, they have surveillance footage, right? They subpoenaed two months worth of footage. So they saw people going in and out of that basement room. And Trump and these guys were moving these documents and boxes around, having bullshitted the archives had given back some of them and not everything. They were playing cute with this stuff and they got busted. 
But at this tournament, when Trump was asked by ESPN, how do you feel, you know, about these families that are offended that you're hosting Saudi Arabia and they lost their loved one in 9-11? He said, ah, we don't really know what happened on 9-11 and I make a lot of money from the Saudi Arabians. So why should I turn my back on that? You know? Just another despicable thing. And related to 9-11, the guy is full of lies. He told everybody he was down there like he was pulling bodies out of the rubble. He was at Mar-a-Lago on 9-11 with another couple. And Barron's did a big story, the financial paper, on this in 2016. The, guy, the other couple who was with him down there, the guy has since passed away. Miracle, right? Another convenient death in Trump's story. But another couple said we were down there at Mar-a-Lago. So when Trump made that phone call saying, I now have the highest tower in New York City and stuff and doing the anti-Muslim stuff in Jersey City, saying they were laughing on rooftops, he wasn't even in New York City. He wasn't even smelling that smoke like the rest of us and hearing the screams and the sirens and the horror of that day. He was sitting in the same private resort that he's now storing documents on. And it's just another thing that nobody went after and did the story on with Trump. People accept the myth that Trump gives them like he doesn't drink. He drinks. His just brothers were alcoholics, so he preferred stimulants. But he sits there with a bud in his hand sometimes and wine when he was at clubs. He's the one who said he didn't drink. He's the one who said he was a 9-11 helping victims. He isn't photographed down there until November 18th. Flights were shut down for two days after. So he slipped back into Teterboro a couple days after applied for relief funds saying one of his buildings was damaged and it wasn't, right? And then as president would just build upon, lie upon lie about his heroics on that day. To me, nothing could be more offensive than that. And another story that's just gone untold, you know? So he's like, what's the big deal? I'm taking Saudi Arabian money. And that's Trump. You know, he's a thief. He's a compulsive thief. You know, his friends would say about him, like, he's the kind of guy, if you asked him what time it was, he'd look at his watch and lie to you just for the practice. Right? So he's compulsive. So and he's finally busted. Right? He's hopefully finally busted. But what we're seeing in this is the depravity of the GOP, how owned they are that they're still defending this man, that nobody's dissing him. Right? They're, ju they're just like rabid dogs, Elise Stefanik, and all these just completely immoral people are attacking the FBI. Right, The party of law and order and salute the flag and we love our vets and we love our cops and blue flags is like, screw the FBI. They planted evidence. They're a bunch of criminals. They're not. FBI doesn't raid your house unless they have a reason to. I've been raided by the FBI. Okay, I've had FBI stick a gun in my face when I was 13 years old and say, freeze, FBI, because they were coming into the apartment I lived in with my mom for a damn good reason. And they pulled her out of there and she went to prison and stayed there for the next five years. And you don't hear me bitching about the FBI, right? They were just doing their jobs and they were professional. Matter of fact, one of them saw a big Stones poster on my wall, and looked at me. He was looking down a shotgun at me. And he goes, you like, the, you like the stones? And I go, yeah. And he goes, all clear in here. And he just backs out of the room. You know, you could see the humanity in the guy. He was shocked to find like a kid in the room. And that's another story. And you're probably like, what the fuck? <laughs> Some of you longtime listeners may know. My mom had a tendency to rob a couple of banks when she was on the drugs. And uh, she did. And uh, she's sober now. And she paid her price. And, you know. It's the early 80s. People got caught up in that, and they did all kinds of things, you know. Cocaine was expensive in the 80s. Thanks, CIA. But anyway, that's a joke. <laughs> but anyway, my point is, you don't even hear me, radical hippie left, lefty guy, attacking the FBI, who actually has experience with the FBI, you know. There's no reason to resent them. They're as professional a law enforcement agency as it gets at the field office level. You know, James Comey wasn't so professional when he did what he did to Hillary, he was an idiot. But even to do that, but even James Comey, right? A couple months later when he's in the White House and Trump's like, hey buddy, why don't you go easy on Mike Flynn? What did Comey do? He 
took contemporaneous notes because he knew he was being propositioned in an illegal way. You know, there's that famous first meeting when Comey was on the other side of the room and Trump tries to get him over there and give him the handshake and be like, you're one of me now, let's get along. Comey is a Boy Scout. He wasn't having that shit. And I know people are mad at Comey. I'm not defending Comey. I'm saying even Comey, a guy who was basically willing to throw the election to Trump, because those kind of law enforcement guys, they weren't down with Hillary. We know that, right? We know the kind of people that generally go into law enforcement <laughs> in this country. Even that dude was like, no, nope, this guy's a scumbag. And what did he do? He was trying to get a foreign agent, Mike Flynn, that he'd been warned about by Obama, out of hot water. Right, because he was working as an agent on behalf of Erdogan, a dictator in Turkey, and Vladimir Putin, who Flynn had sat next to at a dinner in Moscow, where Trump, by the way, had just spent the last year that he was running for president trying to build a tower and having his personal lawyer slash fixer lie about it to the FBI and members of Congress. Okay, so he was bringing Comey in and saying, "You're part of this network now of criminality," and Comey wasn't having it and started to investigate. And then he fired Comey, famously. And the very next day, he had Kislyak and Lavrov, two of Putin's top diplomatic spies, you know, top fixers in the Oval Office. No American president had done that. And what did Trump say to them? He said, I fired Comey because that guy was a pain in the ass. He was going to get in the way of the business we're about to do. And then Trump revealed classified info to the Russians about Israeli intelligence that gave up an operative. We had to pull an operative out of Israel because Trump gave up intelligence that they can reverse engineer and then figure out who was there and how they got that info. It's very dangerous stuff. It costs millions of dollars. There's a lot of sacrifice. In, in, in intelligence gathering. There's a lot of missed birthdays and you know, family events and funerals because people are stationed overseas. Both of my family, you know, both of my grandfathers were in the foreign service, as you know. One was even higher up, you know, than the NSA, you know, maternal grandfather I told you about. That guy was could walk into the Oval Office. His security clearance was like he would sit there with Kissinger and Nixon and they'd discuss strategy. Vietnam and Panama before that and Venezuela. My grandfather was in the limo with Nixon in Caracas when it got attacked. And my grandfather was the guy who said, we can't go through town. They hate us. <laughs> you know, they just had a, we just helped like a dictator here. They, they're not, uh, they do not love the U.S. And Nixon was so arrogant. He was like, no, we're going right through town in his limo with the American flags on the front. And my grandfather was like, no, we got to take this other circuitous route. You know, <laughs> they're going to attack us. And what'd they do? They attacked it. And my grandfather is in the back of that limo with Kissinger. He's like, you son of a bitch, I'm not going to see my family now with, with Nixon. You son of a bitch, I'm not going to see my family now because of you. They, at that time, Nixon was obviously vice president, right? He wasn't president yet. This is like late 50s, early 60s, right? So my point is, my family sacrificed a lot for intelligence. And I'm not saying that for any other reason than I've been a witness to that. You know, I see what that does to family. So here's Trump in the Oval Office giving up the lifetime work. Because if you go into that field, that's your field, man. You know, there's not a lot of ex-CIA agents and ex-NSA analysts. You know, you pretty much stay in until you retire and then you keep your mouth shut. The first thing Trump did as president was go to the CIA and insult them. Literally, the next day, he went in there and started talking about his crowd size in front of the wall of heroes. Just insulted them. That's on purpose. That's all Putin's direction. Trump had been battling the FBI his whole life, right? The DOJ opened their first investigation into Trump and his dad in 1973. Right? Trump dealt with mobsters all throughout the 80s in his casinos and his construction businesses. He was a partner of the Gambinos. He knew Sammy the Bull and John Gotti and Paul Castellano before that and Fat Tony Salerno. These are his dudes, okay? So the FBI guys in a van listening outside, that's part of Trump's, you know, MO. That's part of Trump's world. And now that he's president, he wants to break down the intelligence agencies because they get in the way of him making a buck. 
just like the mob does, and that's what he did. And on his way out the door, he stole documents. You know, he stole things that would be valuable, right? That he could sell, that he could get favors. And Trump's a dumbass. He can't even read, right? So he doesn't know what this stuff is on, right? It's not like Trump's sitting up late at night, you know, trying to learn about how cold fusion works. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's snorting Adderall and looking at his phone, pictures of Ivanka or whatever, you know? So somebody dropped a dime on him. Probably the Secret Service guys that were still there and know that they didn't give back all the documents. And I think Mark Meadows has probably flipped and is telling him, you know, what kind of stuff he might have been taking. And I think the Secret Service guys were like, yeah, there's a box in the basement or a few of them, you know. And that's scary. And it's all going to come out, you know. It's all coming out. And that's the good news, right? Because... I started the show like this is in all these episodes I've done. This is the first time Trump is truly on the ropes, right? Because all the other things, the scandal becomes the story and not the facts of what he did. This time, we know what the facts are. He stole nuclear documents. He stole top secret level stuff, signal intelligence, stuff that like only a few people, you know, for your eyes only can look at. Stuff he had no business with, you know, and they're trying the same to run the same playbook they've done every other time. Well, it's a witch hunt. It's bullshit. You know, they're just attacking Trump. Trump's not the political opponent of Joe Biden. That was in 2020. Biden kicked his ass. Trump is not Biden's equal. Trump is not going to beat DeSantis in a Republican primary anymore. Trump knows that, right? Carrie Lake called DeSantis, said he had big dick energy yesterday. BDE, big dick energy. That kind of toxic idiocy appeals to the base, right? And Trump knows that. Trump knows that DeSantis has the virility, the illusion of masculinity that Trump always craved, right? Like the t-shirts with Trump with the Rambo body holding a gun and his face superimposed. In reality, he's a 76-year-old in a diaper who gets winded walking 10 feet. You know, he would need a golf cart to go more than 30 feet on The Apprentice, okay? The dude's as out of shape as it gets, right? So DeSantis has him beat dead to rights already for the nomination. Trump knows it, and he's just trying to figure out what the next deal is, whether he gets him to take Don Jr. or gives him a piece of the fundraising, or, you know, if he makes a promise that if DeSantis is elected, he'll give a pardon to Trump. Who knows what they're thinking, but he knows he's not the, the equal anymore, and he's certainly not a political rival of Joe Biden, right? He hasn't announced. He's not a candidate. He's grifting. He's, he's doing fundraisers every week still. He's texting his people 20 times a day to send him money because they're marks, and they'll keep doing it. They'll keep doing it for generations. You know, Trump will become a godhead in the conservative party. They're probably wishing he would die quicker than Democrats, because once he's dead, he's just a, like a Jesus-like figure to them. <laughs> and I don't diss Jesus. I'm just saying he becomes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? He becomes this illusion that they can pray to, and then the more immoral men that are in charge can do their bidding and carry on the grift. And the whole Republican scene knows it. They're not turning their backs on Trump because Trump gave them those Supreme Court nominees, right? Three of those guys on the bench that took, just took away a woman's right to abortion that are allowing the NRA to sell weapons of war on American streets. They're going to take away your Social Security next, in the next term, right? They're going to take away environmental protections, allow energy companies to do what they want, right? They're going to take away affirmative action to bake the playing field again, not level, so mediocre white men can continue to hold on to power. You know, that's their game plan as a minority rule, you know, where these guys get to rule over the rest of us and feed their avarice, right, through hatred and violence and hopefully keeping people ignorant enough they don't know any better. And that's DeSantis, right? Trump didn't really go after education. I mean, he put Betsy DeVos <laughs> at the Department of Ed, so that's like putting a cyanide you know, in your milkshake. So yeah, they did try to kill it, but not in the radical way that DeSantis is doing in Florida. I mean, this story is mind-blowing if you're not paying attention to it, 
And if you're not watching his, you know, speeches on it, he's just letting anybody teach kids who's associated with his definition of patriotism. So military vets, military spouses, right? Veterans could make great teachers, but nobody can teach without proper training and teaching. It's high art. It's a specific skill. It's a heroic skill in how they are underpaid and neglected in our country's schools. But our public school system is what set us apart in the world. It's what helped create the middle class and led people to opportunities in higher education that grew this country. And they want to shrink it now. Because the one percenters have enough. They're like, look, we have ours. We need workers. We don't need more lawyers. We'll get enough of those. We need people to show up and work at Hardee's, you know, and Walmart and the dollar store. So the CEOs can end up getting $50 million a year paychecks while they're exploiting people working for eight bucks an hour. And Florida is a Petri dish for that, you know. It's exploitation, it's cruel, it's criminal, and it's what's next. It's what's on the agenda for the GOP. So they're going to stand by Trump because they're winning. Even though Trump's losing, they're still winning these battles for now, right? It's why they're having their rallies every week. You know, they had Turning Point USA yesterday. That's the Carrie Lake quote. Why are they having these rallies every week? And why isn't somebody making more of a story out of it? You know, I know I've suggested we need to do our own thing, but we better do it quick because like a forward party and these other idiocy things are kind of filling the void. You know, it's scary stuff. There's big money behind Andrew Yang. They want him to be the, you know, Jill Stein 2.0 and pull away any votes in a tight election or in the midterms, you know. So it's a lot, but it's a lot of good news on its surface, right? I know I always get into the negative stuff because I'm trying to talk about the big picture, but, you know, basically rejoice. Trump got busted. It's beyond his imagination that somebody could actually go in there and take something from him because he's gotten away with so much because nobody ever looks that closely. And he's always been able to corrupt those around him, especially law enforcement. That's why the Comey thing was so flummoxing to him because he couldn't believe he couldn't easily corrupt James Comey, like he could, you know, Tony Ornato, his Secret Service guy. You know, he, he, he usually sees cops as you give him a couple bucks, they're on your side. You know, that's been his M.O. And, and in New York, that's not hard to do, right? From mayors on down, there's a long legacy of corruption in New York City. It helps, helps the city run, right? Giuliani was a mobster dude, right? He's famous for taking down the mob, but he was making way for the Russian mob to come in and take over. And there's no coincidence that Giuliani was the guy on behalf of Trump going around to Ukraine, you know, and hanging out with Russians. It's no coincidence that Maria Butina was infiltrating through the NRA, the GOP, the entire time Trump was in office. It's no coincidence that 12 Republican senators flew to Moscow and congressmen, there might have been congressmen too, but, you know, flew to Moscow on the 4th of July. So, Trump and Putin, by extension, have all these guys dead to rights, right? That's why they're all nervous now. There was fingerprints on those documents, and the FBI is, you know, dusting them for prints. Who else would have seen this? Because you know how Trump, you know how sloppy Trump was. Eric Trump talked about the killing of, was it Soleimani, the Iraqi general? I'm getting the name wrong. I'm doing this in real time, folks. <laughs> There's no script, but remember over the Christmas holiday in 19 or whatever, we, we assassinated the Iraqi general, and Eric Trump had told people about it in the chow line at Mar-a-Lago days before. In the buffet line, he's like, hey, stay tuned. My dad's about to do something big. That's how sloppy these people are. When you deal with intelligence, you need sober, disciplined men, you know, as I said, I grew up around these guys. These cold warriors wouldn't say anything. My grandfather never said anything about his career. Both of them. You know, you just knew they were doing some stuff and they believed it was for the greater good. You need that kind of sober seriousness. It's not child's play. Lives are on the line on both ends of this stuff. Sacrifices are made for freedoms, but those freedoms have to, have to be based on on ethics and morality, not personal profit. And it's why I always pointed out with Trump, 
besides all the obvious stuff of what a criminal he is, as an addict, he's the worst person you could have present. Because active addiction means you're living in self-centered fear and greed. You will do anything to feed that Jones when it has its hooks in you. I've been there. You guys know that. I'm sober. You know, your morality goes out the window because your humanity gets debased because all you're listening to is this, you know, mind that's sort of telling you lies all the time and making you think about yourself. And that's Trump to a T. Trump's the most addicted person I've ever met in terms of the isms. And if people in recovery are listening, you know what I mean by the isms, you know? I self me, right? Me, me, me. It's all about me with Trump. Last thing you want in a politician. You want a politician who's thinking about other people, who's not thinking about himself, who's understanding that his calling is to make sacrifices for himself on behalf of the greater good, and he's the man of the moment to do it, and he believes in what he's saying. Right? Not Trump. Not Trump's kids. They want to be rich. Where's Jared and Ivanka now? Not hearing so much from them, are you? Not going to see Jared on CBS Sunday morning trying to sell his book this weekend, are you? You know? And a lot of these guys are going to ride off into the sunset, you know? And Trump probably will never spend a night in jail. You know, I know people still think, oh, they're going to lock... They're not going to lock him up. He's still a former president, you know? But hopefully they'll take down his businesses, you know? And on that note, he pled the fifth 440 times this week when he sat for a deposition across the table from New York Attorney General Letitia James. And that's for his business, right? I'll close it up with these points. That's for lying about his business, inflating assets, saying, you know, Seven Springs up here in Westchester is worth $280 million. <laughs> it's an $8 million property at best. You know, it's just for lying and cheating and cooking the books, right? Alan Weisselberg, I believe, was deposed on Friday. You know, that's Trump was always running a scam operation. That was no secret in New York City real estate, which is probably a, you know, it's a pretty dog-eat-dog kind of corrupt world to begin with. And Trump, like, led the pack in that, right? But that's his business. So he's getting investigated in his business. The, the FBI, you know, serving a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago was not about January 6th, right? This is just about him stealing classified documents and probably selling them. That's completely separate from the coup attempt, attempt that he was a part of right? From the fake electors ballots, from getting an inciting an angry mob to attack the U.S. Capitol. Those are all three separate things. And those aren't even the vice crimes, which he's still fighting his DNA being released in the E. Jean Carroll case, and not mentioning the 200 other victims, at least 25 of which are on record, some of which I know that aren't public, as I've told you before. So that's not even his vice crimes. That's not even the rapes. You know, he buried his ex-wife on his golf course in an empty coffin because she'd been cremated. That's more than just a tax break, right? She fell down the stairs. Another convenient death, like his helicopter pilots and everybody else. You know, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but there's a lot of coincidences around that dude when it comes to him and getting in trouble. But now we got him in many ways. And in many ways, it was brilliant to do it on these documents because everybody can understand classified intel and how you don't take it with you. It should make you shudder that this guy was in charge for four years and in many ways the U.S. will never be the same because the hate will go on for generations. The people that are, you know, listening to the poison that's being pumped out of Fox News, hearing Tulsi Gabbard give Putin talking points against Ukraine as she did on Friday night while chairing Tucker's show. And Chuck, Tucker disappeared, right? He was already worried that his text messages were going to show up in the Alex Jones stuff, which we still haven't heard about, right? Wait till that comes out. All the GOP dudes and, you know, Giuliani and Bernie Carrick and all the sort of generals that were directing the January 6th coup on behalf of people like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. By extension, agents of Rupert Murdoch, a guy who's trying to destroy democracy, right? So the generations that have been raised on this filth, the people that are listening to an Alex Jones or a Steve Bannon right now, you know, those people, are, those guys get millions of views. 
right? Not, there's not a million people listening to me, <laughs> you know, like, so they're, they're getting this stuff 24 seven, right? Their kids are listening to this. Their kids are going to grow up in that hate the same way people still wave Confederate flags, you know, and that's scary. That's something we're going to have to contend with. And that's something we'll counter with empathy, with art, with humanities. You know, that's how you really change hearts and minds. And that's why I opened the show talking about Gord Downey, you know, and the tragically hip, but that could be whatever it is to you. Picking the guitar up again. So it was David Crosby's birthday yesterday. Nice segue, huh? Happy birthday, Cros. As you guys know, I've had many adventures with Crosby. And Crosby was a fearless guy. Crosby would speak out no matter where we were, man. We'd be doing a show in Mississippi. And Crosby would start, like, saying he likes Obama and telling the truth, you know? He was, like, always, and is, he's still alive, always outspoken. So was Graham. So was Stephen, you know? But Crosby's really, like... He's going to tell it to you like it is. There's no filter on David Crosby. <laughs> and if you know him well, that can be a detriment. You know, it can get people mad at him, but it's, it's fun to be around. And I'm glad he's still with us. I remember at his 70th birthday party, we had a, we had a surprise party. We were doing a Muse reunion. Muse was the No Nukes concert that Jackson Brown and Springsteen and all these guys did at the Garden in the late 70s. So we redid it probably 2010 maybe. And uh, it was Crosby's 70th birthday, and we had a big party the night before, a little private party at this hotel we were all staying at, which was a lot of fun. And Crosby's a lot of fun, and I think of all the adventures I had with him. You know, we were in Berlin one time, and he, Crosby likes to eat breakfast on the road. He's up early. You know, Crosby's sober for a long time from, from the stuff that you guys, you know, think of Crosby as doing. And he, so he'd get up early and he'd always like to eat breakfast in the nice hotels and stuff. So he, he brought me down to have breakfast with him at this fancy hotel in Germany. And we, it was just me and him sitting at this breakfast table. And he gave me a flashlight. And for those of you who work in production, a flashlight is like your main tool because backstage is dark. And when you're a road manager, you're the guy who's bringing the artist, you know, from the dressing room onto the stage. And once you get backstage, it's pitch black and there's cables and, you know, Old men can trip and the tour is over. <laughs> so, or young men can trip, right? The tour is over. So it becomes a very important thing. It's same in live TV. So your flashlight is like, you know, it's your thing, right? And, and Cross pre presented me with a really nice flashlight in Germany. And he said, here, man, I'm giving this to you. I only give it to guys that stick around for a while and really become a part of this band. And that was one of the highest honors I've ever received. Because I'm a guy in rock and roll, man. Those were my heroes and educators, musicians. You know, those were the guys who got me in the game, so to speak. Not for self-gain, but for trying to use music and art to change the world in a radical way. So that was a huge honor, you know. And Crosby and I have a bit of a complicated relationship, as many people do, with him. But you can't take away those memories, you know. And uh, that was a fine moment. And then we talked about sci-fi novels and stuff. He's incredibly well-rounded intellect he loves guitars he and i would go to guitar shops on days off and next week i'll well i'm going to be away next week but uh the show will be on but i'll be in nantucket recording but i'll show you one of the weirdest instruments i ever got because cross and i cross and i also like the weird shit as he would say and that guitar i played last week that's a McAllister. that's a private builder that cross found and turned jackson brown onto and stuff but uh so crosby wakes me up one time we're in Lyon, France, playing this old amphitheater, which is carved into the side of a mountain. It's a Roman thing. It's very cool. And uh, I get a call in my room, and it's Crosby, and he's like, hey, man, I found this, like, old instrument store down by the river. Get down here, you know? And I go down there, and it's like, this dude has instruments, like, from, like, the 18th century, like old guitars and violins and giant singing bowls, like Tibetan singing bowls, and Crosby collects singing bowls. So he got this massive singing bowl that he had shipped home. And I got this um, basically like a dulcimer bazooki combination. And many of you guys are probably like, what the hell is he talking about? So I'll show you next time I do it live. But uh, I got this really cool, weird double course instrument, which I love. So happy birthday, Cross! Thank you for all the music. Maybe I should tell one more Cross story. 
No, I'll save it for another time. There's a great Crosby story that Nash told me involving Miles Davis. So remind me and I'll tell you that one sometime. But glad you're still with us, big man. Enjoy it. Enjoy your family. Cros is a big family man too. Most people don't know that. But anyway, to that point, art, man, love, right? That brings us together. Like I said at the top of the show, that tragically hip thing is a wonderful thing to watch. You should really watch this documentary. And uh, think of that, you know, think of those times you feel connected and together with other people. And think of the spirit, you know, the spirit becomes, comes from open hearts. It comes from not being ashamed of your humanity, from not putting on airs, from letting a teardrop fall from your eye when you see beauty in the same way it does when you're wounded, Right? It's from being sensitive and open to life. That's how we get the true blessing and the miracle. You know, go watch a butterfly on a flower. I saw one yesterday. It's mesmerizing. Mesmerizing. Watch a frog sitting in a pond. You know, look at the colors on a bird. Listen to the sound. You know, it all has a reason and a purpose. It's not random. And you're a part of it. You know, and anything that makes you more present and more in the moment and stand up straight, so to speak, is a good thing. It's a higher power that you can align yourself with. You can set your chart to follow those stars, and you're always going to be in open waters. So thank you for listening. I love you guys. Until next week, be safe, be cool, and I'll talk to you next time. Noel Kassler Podcast, Episode 76 is done. Peace.